and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this special session, Rescue and Renewal Women's Conference. In these lessons, we'll hear from several different ladies on several different topics in regards to rescue and renewal. We hope that you enjoy these lessons as they will be very applicable to each of your lives as women. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy it. A little bit more time in Mark 6 um, as we talk about rescue and renewal this weekend. So follow along with me, or if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 45 of Mark 6. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. To Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them, he departed to a mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against, the, against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when, he saw, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Rescue comes by seeing Jesus clearly. So the disciples were clearly frightened. And these were fishermen, used to being out on the water, and they were fighting with the waves because the wind was blowing really hard. Have you ever tried rowing a boat in the wind? (laughs) I don't have that much experience, but I've tried running against the wind, and it is really difficult. I live on an island, which is 14 miles long, Roanoke Island, and you don't have to go very far to find water. So I'm training for a half marathon right now. So even if it's windy, I have to get outside and run. And I, Lori took me over to Boomer Lake, and I tried to run on the little ice. Felt like I was cross-country skiing. Um, but running against the wind is about 10 times harder than running when there's no wind, right? So the disciples, they've been at this for hours. Jesus sends them off in the evening, and about the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., they're still, they're still straining at the oars. So they've been battling it all night, and I'm sure by this time they're exhausted. So this passage can be really confusing because it looks like Jesus saw his disciples struggling, but then ignored them all night and let them suffer. In part, that's true. He did know that they were suffering, and he didn't go to them right away. Because what was he doing? So verse 46 tells us, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. There's one part in our chapter in Mark that we haven't talked about. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. We looked at the sending of the 12 in verses 12, the sending of the 12 in verse 7, and then we moved on to the return of the disciples in verse 30. But do you see what happens in the middle? The death of John the Baptist. Matthew tells us that after John's disciples buried him, they went and told Jesus. Mark doesn't give us that detail. But we know that Jesus knew. 
So our whole context of this story comes with the death of Jesus' cousin, his, part, his second cousin, his partner in ministry, and a dear family friend. So if both of their mothers were dear friends, I can only imagine that their family stayed close throughout the years. In Mark, there's no other mention of Jesus responding to John's death. So here we have Jesus' own disciples that he's caring for, 5,000 people that he's teaching and feeding, and the death of a loved one that he's grieving. That was his day. So what does Jesus do? He goes to the Father. He sends the disciples away, and he goes up into the mountaintop to pray. And we're not talking for 15 minutes. He prays most of the night. Jesus relied heavily on the Father for strength and restoration. That was the most important thing for him to be doing that night, spending time with God. And yes, the disciples struggled, and they waited, and Jesus knew this. But I think the human Jesus needed this time. So we see the humanity of Jesus all throughout the Gospels. He got tired. He got hungry. He depended on the Father for spiritual refreshment. And then Jesus goes to the disciples. So notice that the wind was still howling around Jesus. He he revealed himself in the midst of the struggle. They see him most clearly amid heartache. And he says to them, cheer up. It is, he says, cheer up, I am. And the Greek here is ego amy. Do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Do you understand? The wind, the water, it's all mine. I made it. I have sovereignty over it. You don't have to be afraid. So what did the disciples need? They thought they needed the dang wind to die down so they could row to the other side. But Jesus is telling them, what you really need is to see me clearly. If you saw me, you wouldn't have any fear and you would understand. So in most of our Bibles, most of them say, have Jesus saying, it is I, or it's me. But the Greek means I am. Think about when and where Jesus is saying that. During a miraculous display of his power. Just as God spoke out of the burning bush, showing his sovereignty over it, Jesus says, I am, while walking on a windy sea. So when I was studying this passage, I was really wrestling over the part when it says that Jesus was going to pass them by. I couldn't understand why he would walk right by them in the middle of their struggle. But the answer is really amazing. So in the Old Testament, the expression passing by is often used to describe what God does when he appears to people. So when the Lord appeared to Moses in bodily form in Exodus 33, the Bible says, He put Moses in the cleft of the rock, covered him with his hand, and then passed by. In Exodus 34, when God gives Moses the new stone tablets, he passed in front of Moses. In 1 Kings 19.11, God tells Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So when Jesus is about to pass by, he's not ignoring them. It's just the opposite. He's revealing himself his trueness, and all of his glory. This was perhaps one of the strongest statements of his deity that he made in the New Testament. The combination of him walking on water, passing by, and the use of the term I am. So it's not surprising that the parallel count, account of Jesus walking on water in Matthew 14 says that at that point the disciples worshipped him. Our passage says they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Why were they amazed? 
because they hadn't seen Jesus clearly. So Jesus was planning for a spectacular rescue for his disciples, not just out of the wind and the waves, but the very best rescue of all, to see him clearly. Have you ever gone through a tough situation and you just wish that you had clarity? I pray that a lot. Lord, help me to see this clearly. Help me to see what's going on. Give me clarity. I feel like if I could just take a step back and see the big picture, I would understand and then I wouldn't worry. I could put everything in context and just make sense of it. And then the answer would be simple. So I told you yesterday about my struggles with anxiety and all the life events that contributed to that. And one of them was the prospect of another move from Pennsylvania to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And to me, it felt like I was gonna have to go through all that emotional turmoil that I felt when we left California. And I was gripping that really tightly. And I had a lot of reasons why the move didn't make sense. So we hadn't been at our church very long. We had the rowing team. Nathaniel was halfway through a doctoral program. But really, I just didn't want to go through it all again. And I didn't want to put my kids through it. And I was projecting onto them all my baggage of moving. So I was sharing all my very good reasons for staying put with my sister-in-law. And she challenged me. And she said, Summer, you're really not trusting God in any of this. If God's directing your husband to ministry in North Carolina and you're refusing to support him, you're not allowing God to work. You need to step back and you need to see Jesus clearly. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, the wind may still be blowing, but you have no cause for fear. And ladies, can I just tell you that there is tremendous blessing and freedom in doing this? I repented to God and to my husband I was trying to control the situation on my terms, and God, and I said, and I finally got to a point where I said, God, if you're moving us on, then you're going to make it okay, and I don't want to hamper the work of God in my life, and I trust you. Nathaniel, I trust you. If God is in this as the leader of our family, then I trust you, and you know, after so many years of moving around, I feel like I've finally come home, and I didn't know what was waiting for me in the Outer Banks. I didn't know that I could love a place and a town and a church so much. I probably say at least once a week, I just can't believe we live here. It is such a gift. We live on a beautiful quiet street with giant pine trees that tower above our house and my kids make forts and climb trees in our yard and we got them all longboards for Christmas so they cruise around downtown Manio. We have the best little tiny town. It's actually where Andy Griffith lived and he has a quote that said, if Mayberry is anywhere, it's Manio. So it's a lively and a fun town, and the people are friendly, and there's little festivals and an old movie theater and ice cream shops, and we're 10 minutes from the beach on top of all of that. So to be honest, I can't even imagine why I resisted it, because I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. So back in Pennsylvania, all I could see was what we were leaving and how hard the move would be. So when I stopped looking at all my excuses and just looked at God, I discovered that God had such beauty and joy waiting for me. When I acknowledged him and saw him and gave him the authority in my life to be God, the wind died down and there was goodness and the desires of my heart. So what does it mean to see Jesus clearly and to give him authority in your life? So there's a lot of areas where we can give Jesus the authority in our lives. And I'm sure that Pastor JB shares all of that with you on Sunday mornings. But because this is a women's retreat, I feel like I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the relationships that we have with our husbands. 
So for the little bit of time we have left, I want to focus on God's rescue for you, specifically through your husband. The Bible has a lot to say about people generally in the Bible, but specifically to wives, there's really only a few instructions about being a wife. So if you're married, we're gonna, I'm going to focus on you. If you're not married, reading and understanding God's word never comes back void, and there's always value. It's either for you later on or if it's, it's for somebody else. So I would encourage all of you to continue to pay attention here. So this is what I could find specifically regarding wives, and there's a lot of verses on here. We're not going to read through all of them, and we could probably spend a whole retreat on all of them, but just with keeping with our theme of rescue, I'm going to just point out, we're going to talk about two of them, and these are two that have really been true in my own marriage. The first one is Ephesians 5.24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. And the second one is 2 Corinthians 7.3, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife also to her husband. So some of you might be here today, and the truth is, is that you might not respect your husband. You might not think that much of him. The way he acts or the things that he's done might make him difficult for you to have any respect for him. And the thought of giving up the reins to your husband's leadership sounds impossible or laughable or just unwise. And you might have set up your marriage so that most of their decisions are made by you, and you're both comfortable with that. So I don't know what kind of marriage you're in, but the last time I checked, we don't have arranged marriages here, and so the fact is is that you got to choose him. You accepted his offer of marriage, and if you're a Christian, there are certain things that are specific to being a Christian wife. So just a quick disclaimer, I'm talking about normal marriages. So if you're in an abusive situation or there's major mental health issues, those are issues to work through with a counselor or a mentor. But for normal marriages... If you believe the Bible, then you have two choices. So you submit to God's authority on the matter, or you don't. And so if you obey God, there's going to be blessings, and if you don't, there's going to be heartaches. I realize this is a tough ask for some of you that are thinking, I just can't conjure up feelings that I don't have. And that's okay for you to feel like that, but you can't stay there because God doesn't want you to because he's designed your husband to be a rescue for you but you have to let him. So for my husband and me, our early married years were really tough. We had a Pennsylvania country boy and a girl from Portland, Oregon. So in high school, if you would have asked me if I believed in inerrancy, I would have said, yep, but I really didn't. (laughs) So you know how some people highlight in their Bible and underline things, and I did that too, Um, but I also crossed out things I didn't like. (laughs) Do you want to know what the verse is that I crossed out? Ephesians 5.24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. And I can handle the first part, but the in everything, I was just like, I, that we, we got to draw the line somewhere. So if you would have told 16-year-old me that 25 years later I'd be standing up here teaching on this verse, I'd have just laughed you to the curb. Um, when I went to Dallas Seminary, I, I got straightened out. <laughs> and I didn't really know that there were people that like literally took the Bible at its word, like tried to do everything that it said. Um, I would have told you that I thought that, but I just didn't. So when I was around a whole community of people who did that and they lived like it, it was really transformational for me. So I I went into marriage with a very young understanding of biblical marriage, but I was really determined to try and live like God designed. 
but I often call our first summer of marriage, like I call it our warring summer. So my husband had an internship at a church that first summer, and I remember we would drive to church together every Sunday morning and fight like cats and dogs, and then I would see the same cute little girl setting up coffee, and she would always ask me, how are you? And I would just lie through my teeth every Sunday. Great! And it was just brutal. It was just brutal. So the crux, really, of all of our fights was authority. Who was going to lead our marriage and who was going to relent? Do you want to hear about our big fight? We're not talking about squeezing the toothpaste tube here. Like, this is real-life stuff. So my best friend from childhood was getting married, and I was a bridesmaid, and she was having a bachelorette weekend in San Francisco, and I wanted to fly across the country and be there for her. And now, let me tell you, in my pre-kid days, like, I used to love to travel. So raise your hand if you love long road trips with little kids. (laughs) No, me either. But before meeting my husband, I'd traveled um, abroad in Italy for a semester. I went back back a couple years later, and I backpacked around Europe. Sometimes I was alone. I navigated train stations in countries where I didn't speak the languages, stayed in youth hostels in over a dozen countries, and this was all without a cell phone. <laughs> to make a reservation, you have to look up in your little book, do you have a room in your phrase book, and then call some foreign phone number on a pay phone, hope that they answer and answer in yes or no answers. And then you get your real paper map out, and you figure out how to get there. And it was awesome, and I just loved every minute of it. So I knew how to take care of myself. But my husband wanted to take care of me, and he didn't want me to go for a number of reasons that I won't get into here, and we just battled it out all summer, it seems. But ultimately, I came back to Scripture in everything. So I submitted, and I didn't go, and I wasn't happy about it. But you know what's interesting is that years later, we revisited that decision, and he told me I could share this, but he admitted that looking back, he didn't make the right call on that trip. But do you know what the real win was for our marriage? That fight was about who was going to lead our relationship. Would I submit to him and the big stuff even if I didn't agree with him? When I said to him, Nathaniel, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust the Lord in this, and that looks like trusting you. And I'm not happy about your decision because it feels like a loss to me. But I promised to do marriage according to the Bible, and so I'm going to relent. I will choose to believe that God has given you wisdom that we need to make the right decision. And I'm not going to hold this against you and make you pay for it. I'm going to trust God in this. So this this set our marriage on the right track. Now, obviously, we don't do everything right. Nobody does. But we keep trying. And maybe your marriage has derailed in this area. And maybe you were never on the right track to begin with. And you're somewhere far away from the marriage that you envisioned. Maybe your husband's disengaged from your children or he looks at pornography or he's constantly on his phone or computer or game console and you feel lonely. If you want to experience God's rescue for your marriage, you have to trust that God's way of doing things works. Do you know why it's a rescue? Because God hasn't designed women to carry the burden of responsibility for your family. He's given that to your husband so that it doesn't weigh heavily on your shoulders. 
my husband and I have faced some big decisions in life, big life stuff, and I always give him my input, and he always listens, but both of us know that it's his decision to make, and he's accountable to God for it. And I'm really thankful that I don't bear those burdens. So we have three boys, and we tell them, boys, it's important that you learn to walk with God, because someday you're going to have a family and a wife that's going to depend on you, and they're going to depend on your ability to hear clearly from God to make decisions. So if you feel some conviction in this, rejoice in that, because that's the Holy Spirit active in you, working to draw you closer to God. And if you feel like you need to make some changes in that, here's a couple ways to start. And this is the first thing, and it's the hardest. If you've taken authority from your husband or not let him lead, you need to repent to God, to your husband, maybe to your children, if you've given them a picture or an example of marriage that isn't what God intended. So you can say to your husband, I've been convicted about the way I treat you, and I'm sorry for not letting you lead our family. Number two, if you've taken the reins for so long that your husband won't even attempt to lead any longer, you need to take some active baby steps to prove to him that you're committed to changing. Ask him his opinion on something. Where to hang a picture, what to buy your son for his birthday, where to go on vacation, and then listen to him. Practice this a dozen times to prove to him that his opinion matters to you. You might have smothered his authority in your marriage that you both need to practice on the small stuff for a while, and that's okay. Because when the big stuff does arrive, arise, the stuff that matters, be mindful that your husband's exercising authority in your home is God's protection for you. You don't want a weak husband. Nobody wants a weak husband. You want a strong husband. And in situations where you're struggling, you're struggling with his decisions, it is the Lord ultimately that you are trusting. If he won't lead, wait. It takes courage to do this, but God will meet your needs. So ladies, I really want this for you. And there are blessings when we seek to honor God. He will come through for you and he will meet the needs in your marriage. He will enrich it and make it really beautiful. Every woman that I know wants a strong marriage with a husband that's present and engaged. And that's impossible if you won't let him lead. And it's also impossible for another reason. So we're going to look at our, our next passage. And this is from 1 Corinthians 7, 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So about one in seven couples, no, one in seven people are in what's called a sexless marriage. So apparently the experts, whoever they are, define that as engaging in sexual intercourse less than 10 times a year. So ladies, if you are a healthy Christian woman in a sexless marriage, you're either in sin or it's a very long prayer session. So here's the thing. Deprived men are bitter men. When I talk to married women who complain about their husbands being withdrawn or distracted or just generally moody, I always ask if they're having sex. And half of you are very glad I live in North Carolina right now. <laughs> but usually there's a breakdown there. So let me repeat, a deprived man is a bitter man. If, it doesn't matter if you get everything else right. 
you can take great care of your kids or cook gourmet meals, pull in a great paycheck, but if you won't have sex with him, none of that matters to him. The only appropriate sexual expression that your husband has is with you. That's it. And Lori talked about this in her breakout session today, which was excellent. So when it comes to you, when he comes to you with that desire, meet it. It's not only biblical, but it will speak volumes to your husband for re- about respect, probably more than anything else that you do. So when I'd been married for a year or two, I got together with a friend, and she was telling me about an argument that she had with her husband. And she said later that day when he initiated, it was the first time that she had told him no when he wanted to have sex. So this was revolutionary for me. So I told my husband no all the time. And I was shocked that her answer had been up to that time, yes, all the time. And I honestly, I didn't even realize that was an option. So I made an agreement with myself that when my husband made it clear that he wanted to be intimate with me, my answer would be yes. And this is surprising for Christian women, but it's in the Bible. So, and it's very clear, so it shouldn't be a surprise. But the truth is, is that a lot of us deprive our husbands on a regular basis. So... Does this mean that I was always in the mood? No, but I do look at it as an opportunity to always love the man I married and meet his needs. And God has really, really honored that. And it's not just men who need sex. You need it too, if you're married. The Bible tells us that a regular sex life will keep us from temptation. And beyond that, it will keep us emotionally connected to our husbands. And I know some of you may have sexual wounds, and it's not just as easy as saying yes. So if this is you, I would encourage you to find a good Christian counselor with the goal of having a sexual, healthy relationship with your husband. And even if it takes some time, I would encourage you, it will speak volumes to him if you're committed to finding healing in that regard so that you can enjoy intimacy together. If you've just gotten used to saying no, I would really encourage you to take this to the the Lord. Read the scriptures, search it out, and just settle it for yourself. So my prayer for you is that in this, you will experience God's rescue for you through the care and love of your husband and from the unity of your marriage that brings you tremendous joy. Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson.